You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event. And welcome back to those of you who were here yesterday to hear Tori Peters' insightful conversation with Caroline Trump. My name is Susanna Kalitza, and I'm the CEO here at the House of Literature. Tonight, Tori will have the stage all to herself for a lecture on transgender literature with the intriguing title, Did Hemingway Write Transgender Literature? Tori Peters' debut novel, The Transition Baby, has been both a commercial and a critical success and has rocketed her into the international literary scene and public discourse. The novel was nominated for the Women's Prize for Fiction and won her the Penn Hemingway Award for debut novels of exceptional merit. Through her witty prose and uniquely human characters, she has carved open a public space for trans issues and paved the way for future stories to be told and heard. And The Transition Baby is now luckily also out in Norwegian, skillfully translated by Kirsti Vogt. Peters has a master's degree in fine arts and comparative literature, something that also shines through in her uh, writing. So, without further ado, please welcome to the stage, Tori Peters. Thank you so much. Hi. Uh, hi to all the people I saw yesterday. It's nice to see you back. Thanks for tolerating me two nights in a row. That's it's like a, it's a compliment. Um, I I didn't know whether it was traditional when people when offering a lecture here to uh, write write things out or just sort of give extemporaneous remarks, and so I kind of split the difference in that I wrote uh, a written piece that'll take me about a half hour to read, and then I'll just kind of offer some remarks on that subject. Um, so uh, I guess without further ado, I'll just start start uh, getting into it. Um, <clears throat> I don't mean to uh, start this talk off with a brag, but in 2021, my novel Detransition Baby won the Penn Hemingway Award for debut novel. Whenever an author receives this award, a representative from the Hemingway Society, a nonprofit founded by Mary Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway's widow, interviews the winning author. In my case, the journalist Steve Paul called me up. He began by apologizing to me. Look, he said, I don't mean to offend you, but obviously I have to talk about Hemingway. And I found in your book a few references that seem a little bit Hemingway-esque. He then pointed out a reference that the, char- that the, a reference that the character Reese makes to Hemingway's famous six-word sad story, for sale, baby shoes, never worn, which my character Reese made sadder by rewriting it, for sale, baby Uggs, never worn. And another reference she makes to the bickering couple in in the Hemingway story, Hills Like White Elephants. It seems to me, the journalist Steve Paul said, wincing and looking extremely nervous, that perhaps you are a Hemingway fan. (laughs) Yes, I said, of course I am. Oh, he said. He looked down at his questions. He didn't seem relieved. (laughs) In fact, he seemed unhappy that you would have to ask me more questions about Hemingway rather than move on. In an instinctive way that comes from navigating the world as a trans person, constantly bumping into people's anxieties about how to address you, I understood why Steve Paul was afraid. He feared that by suggesting as a trans woman, 
He feared that suggesting that a trans woman enjoyed Hemingway, he might be seen as misgendering her. The myth of a Hemingway is of a man's man, enjoyed by men in the company of men. To suggest that a trans woman likes Hemingway, well, you might as well ask her about her preferred mustache waxing techniques. <laughs> in truth, I can sympathize. Hemingway's reputation has narrowed of late. The name can function as a sort of shorthand for a kind of trying-too-hard hypermasculinity shot through with strains of violence and misogyny a blustery sort of insecurity about one's manhood, a manhood which must constantly prove itself, shooting beautiful big cats, boxing bare-chested with fishermen on a dock in Key West, rhapsodizing about the bloody spectacle of a bullfight, discussing the proper fights, uh, top, proper techniques for lovemaking, or making a fetish of reticence, never using an extra word, deriding adverbs as obviously sissy. But this, I reassured Steve Paul, is exactly why I'm a fan of Hemingway. He works so hard at gender. He's constantly shoring it up, overperforming it, codifying it, rewriting it, making it camp before camp even existed as a term. In other words, he does the same work that trans women are often required to do to make their own gender legible in the, both their life and in their writing. And, I would argue, in both cases, it's the unignorable presence of gender that makes Hemingway's writing and many trans women's writing as enjoyable as it is. Steve Paul was surprised. Wait, he asked, are you saying that Hemingway writes transgender literature? <laughs> yes, I said offhandedly, I guess so. <laughs> to be honest, it was a sort of flippant thing that one says to a journalist, not terribly thought through, rather an author's instinct that when being interviewed, when offered a chance to make a provocative claim, you should take it. But now, almost two years later, I've been invited here to give a talk about an author. And thinking about authors, I realize that actually I have a lot of feelings about Hemingway. It's not exactly that Hemingway has been a big influence on my writing, despite the references that Steve Paul pointed out. It's more that Hemingway has been a kind of influence on how, on how I live my life, a ghost or cautionary tale about the risks of investing too much in one's gender as a real and solid thing. So instead of the flippant response I gave to Steve Paul, I want to take the question seriously. Did Hemingway write transgender literature? As a side note, it now turns out that in trying to take this question seriously, I'm competing with the Hemingway Society itself, which was so disconcerted by my offhand claim <laughs> that Hemingway wrote transgender literature that in direct response to it, they put out a call for papers seeking to, quote, address representations of trans and non-binary experience, influence, and applications into the work of Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> but to begin, I think we have to ask, what is transgender literature anyway? Can one even define transgender literature? Does it have a lineage? Let me begin by telling you how I would have answered that question in 2013, when I first began writing my own transgender literature. I was 32, had begun to take hormones for the second time in my life. The first time, five years before, I took them in secret and gave up when it seemed I could no longer hide the effects and would have to change my life, something I was too scared to commit to. Then at 32, I tried again, and this time told everyone, which had blown up my life in exactly the way I, feared, I most feared it would. In response, I moved to Seattle because I was having an affair with a married man who lived there, and I was so new to womanhood that I didn't yet understand that I was a cliché mistress. I thought that my being transgender somehow changed the rules, made what was boring and tawdry into something exciting and transgressive. I didn't understand that what can happen to every other woman also happens to trans women. 
While waiting around in Seattle, hoping my, for my affair to become something worth living for, I read a book called Nevada by Imogen Binney. The book changed my life. It wasn't so much the story told as the address of the book. Imogen had written the book as a trans woman for other trans women. I had never encountered this before. I had, of course, read books by trans people, but they were largely memoirs, accounts in which trans people explained themselves to a presumed cis audience. Imogen, it turned out, was part of a writing scene taking place in Brooklyn, centered around a small press called Topside, run by a charismatic, difficult trans man named Tom Legere, who, full disclosure, would eventually become my boyfriend. <laughs> and then afterwards, quite tumultuously and dramatically, my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Tom founded Topside with grand dreams. He wanted to self-consciously invent the category of transgender fiction to set the terms for trans fiction as he envisioned it. And he took heat for this. There were plenty of trans writers who pre-existed and coexisted with Topside who vehemently disagreed with him. And in fact, Tom's incessant battles of that time led him to eventually withdraw from public life. But for a time, I and many others were enthralled with his ideas. I often in my talks still gloss them. They were ideas largely present, present in black American literature, but repurposed for trans people. Think about how Toni Morrison famously and explicitly wrote for black women. By doing so, she didn't have to fold, slow down to explain herself, to explain her words, or her pain. She wrote at a full-out sprint, and it turned out that everyone else wanted to keep up as well. Tom wanted trans people to write that way, without explaining themselves. He wanted trans people to raise the bar. When a trans woman writes for other trans women, she has to tell those trans women something about the trans experience that they've never put into words. If you tell them the sort of things that are new to cis people, say what it's like to inject hormones, a trans woman will yawn in your face. To show what this type of writing might look like, Tom and his co-publisher, Riley, another trans man, published two books, The Topside Anthology, a collection of short fiction, and the novel Nevada. He then took these two books on tour, the way that punk bands might tour, sleeping on whatever couch was available, holding workshops and readings in bars, independent bookstores, anarchist spaces, pretty much anywhere that he thought he might find trans people. He was a trans fiction evangelist, forcing pens into the hands of any trans people he could find, holding readings where they were forced to listen to each other to try and express themselves, and then to reflect on how it felt to actually listen to each other. For his workshops, he had an exercise that he used to try and get people to write transgender literature the way that he envisioned it. Uh, I don't know if you all are familiar with the Bechdel test, if that made it to Norway, but it was uh, created by Alison Bechdel in her comic Dykes to Watch Out For, as a tongue-in-cheek measure of women's representation in film. The Bechdel test goes as follows. One, are there at least, two trans, uh, at least two women featured in a movie? Two, do these women talk to each other? And three, do they discuss something other than a man? As you might guess, many Hollywood movies fail this test. Tom, seeing how catchy the Bechdel test was in the aughts, created a similar test for trans representation that he called the topside test. The topside test is as follows. One, two trans people are featured. Two, these two trans people talk to each other. And three, that they discuss something other than medically, medical transition. Most trans books of the time, even those written by trans people, fail this, this test. 
The point of this exercise was to show writers the difference between trans people and trans culture. One isolated trans person does not make a culture. Trans people interacting about the whole of life, not just transition, makes a culture. Armed with this topside test, Tom held workshops around the country for trans writers where he had them write stories that passed this test. I met him in one, su one such workshop in Seattle. Afterwards, we slept together. He slept with many aspiring trans writers. <laughs> and a few months later, I broke up with the married guy and moved in with Tom in Brooklyn. The relationship went very badly, but in his apartment, I wrote the first of what I would call my own transgender literature. It passed the topside test. Topside, as a scene, completely imploded after about two years. Everyone was poor, many of us slept together, so the whole thing was rife with drama and intrigue, and eventually, accusations of abuse. Many of us in the scene did sex work in order to make money, in order to have time to write, and Topside did a really poor job, including writers of color. It was, like most art scenes, wildly imperfect, but it was representative of the era. And I believe Tom's manifestos widely changed how trans stories were told. The television show Transparent hired trans writers in the second season in response to his criticism. The Lambda Awards, the biggest LGBT literary awards in the United States, created the category of transgender fiction and awarded the inaugural award to Tom and Riley's anthology. The award has only ever been given since to trans writers writing for trans audiences. People began speaking of trans fiction on Tom's terms even as Tom made himself more and more enemies until about six months after he and I broke up, he withdrew from all public commentary or appearances. Now most people don't know his name. But even if most people don't know his name, one finds the, the terms of his transgender fiction entering the mainstream. So that even a magazine like The New Yorker credited the topside published Nevada for, quote, the invention of the trans novel. All of which is to say, in 2013, I would have had two definitions for trans literature. One, is it written by a trans person? And two, does it pass the topside test? So, as an exercise, let's see if Hemingway wrote literature on these terms. First criterion, is Hemingway's work written by a trans person? Well, Hemingway's mother famously dressed him up and treated him as a girl during parts of his early childhood, According to the recent Ken Burns and Lynn Nobeck PBS documentary, beginning in his infancy, Ernest's mother would twin him with his sister, alternating between dressing them up as boys and girls. But of course, being dressed as a girl before you can even understand the meaning of it doesn't make you a girl. So then, how about this? Mary Hemingway's diary, included in her memoir, discussed a 1953 trip to Kenya when Hemingway established a, quote, new names department, rechristening himself Catherine Ernest Hemingway and her Peter Mary Welsh Hemingway. Mary's memoir suggests that Hemingway sometimes imagined himself as a woman in their sexual encounters and on occasion, on a few occasions, styled his appearance in ways he considered feminine. His biographer, Mary Dearborn, elaborated. This is a quote. He really had a thing about androgyny and liked to switch roles in bed. And he tells Mary, let's play around. I'll call you Pete and you call me Catherine. She's satisfying that intense desire of his to play with sex roles that way. It took a lot of guts for him. In a way, he wanted to be a woman who loved another woman. Close quote. This revelation, which didn't come about until the 1990s, led to a small cottage industry of academics speculating about Hemingway's gender and sexuality. In books with titles like 
Papa Hemingway's fetishism, in which the critics say things like, quote, Hemingway suffered from the wound of androgyny. Many of these books ended up labeling him perverse and deviant, which is to say, he was insulted in the way that trans women were insulted. But being insulted like a trans person doesn't make you one. I too have been insulted this way. I've been called perverted. I've been told that my desire to be a woman is a kind of sexual fetish, that I'm not a woman. I'm a man who has fetishized womanhood to such a degree that it has consumed me. Because I'm a trans woman who has been insulted that way, I know these insults are illogical, hateful, and inaccurate. To treat Hemingway with any kind of respect means that no, just because he role-played in bed from time to time does not mean that I or anyone else has the right to claim him as a particular type of person that he did not claim as for himself. And in fact, as a matter of principle, I've come to disdain the tendency to close-read dead authors' diaries, hoping to catch them in some act, to anachronistically claim them as one type or another. You probably know the sort of thing I mean. Claims that James Joyce was a fart fetishist and Marcel Proust was a gerbiler, or whatever. <laughs> If the actual writing does not speak to transness, I'm not very interested in the diaries. So let's check the score so far. Hemingway, still not trans. <laughs> and thus, not yet writing transgender literature by my 2013 litmus test. But what about the writing itself? Can we put Hemingway through the topside test? And actually, this is, too is a bit hard to be definitive about. The 1986, in 1986, The Garden of Eden was published posthumously. According to Burns and Novak, Hemingway, Hemingway himself called the book too sexually adventurous to be published during his lifetime. The novel follows newly married David and Catherine Bourne as they, as they honeymoon along the French Riviera. At first, everything seems very Hemingway. A writer protagonist, plenty of fishing, food, wine, and like knowing allusions to war. Then the novel takes a turn. I'm going to be changed, Catherine proclaims to her husband before cutting her hair, quote, short as a boy's. I'm a girl, but now I'm a boy too, and I can do anything and anything and anything, she teases him. I'm going to wake up in the night and do something to you that you've never heard of or imagined. Then a few pages later, quote, he had shut his eyes, and he could feel the long, the long light weight of her on him. He lay there and felt something, and then her hand holding him and searching lower, and he helped with his hands and then lay back in the dark and did not think at all and only felt the weight and strangeness inside. And she said, now you can't tell who is who, can you? From there, the gender roles continue to evolve. Catherine, and eventually David, falls in love with another woman. Catherine has all three of them cut their hair into matching schoolboy styles, and she and her husband dye their hair the same blonde. You are changing, she tells him. Yes, you are, and you're my girl, Catherine. Will you change and be my girl and let me take you? While this already challenges the hypermasculinity of the Hemingway canon, the academic Susan Seitz says that this official public published version didn't even begin to go far enough. Far enough. <clears throat> In the posthumous editing of Garden of Eden, Hemingway's editors have been responsible for substantial cuts of lines, scenes, this is a quote from her, so substantial cuts of lines, scenes, and whole chapters the addition of manuscript material that Hemingway had discarded and transposed scenes and dialogue. Such editing has resulted in published texts which do not represent Hemingway's intentions in these works as he left them when he died. In addition to these textual issues, Hemingway was exploring new territory in both his prose style and his in, in his view of the relationship between men and women. In his later work, 
Hemingway was reconsidering the male-female relationship and was exploring androgyny and the reversal of gender roles. The editing of the posthumous work has not allowed these new considerations in Hemingway's writing to appear. Rather, the texts have been edited to make the posthumous work conform to the received Hemingway canon, that of the hypermasculinity, and do not allow for the new developments in both Hemingway's style and his treatment of the male-female relationship. Close quote. I have not read the full 800 pages of manuscript that was eventually edited down to become the Garden of Eden, but I think even without it, we can render a verdict on the topside test. Did Hemingway pass the topside test? Well, it seems he did. We have two characters who change genders, who do talk to each other, and they talk to, some, to each other about something other than transition. So Hemingway passed the topside test. But as we've established, Hemingway isn't trans. So was Tom wrong that actually writing transgender literature has nothing to do with whether or not you're trans? That anyone can write transgender literature? And if so, is it simply whatever passes the narrow topside test? Or might it be something larger? Certainly, if Hemingway wrote transgender literature, then Virginia Woolf's 1928 novel Orlando, which does not pass the topside test, but whose titular character literally changes gender, ought to be considered transgender literature. Let me now introduce another way to define transgender literature, a broader definition that still might fit both Orlando and Hemingway. In 2016, the writer KLM Keegan offered a new criteria for what constitutes, quote, a trans encounter with a moving image. The essay draws on phenomenology and the work of Susan Stryker and Sarah Ahmed to define what a trans text might be. And the whole thought process is impressive and incredibly complex. So I hope Keegan and you all will forgive me if I just simplify that big essay down to Keegan basically says, a trans text is whatever hails you as a trans person. As an example, Keegan described a 1990s era ad for milk by the America Dairy Council with the slogan, milk, it does a body good. Do you all have that here? No? Okay. <laughs> well... Just try and get it. <laughs> okay. In the ad, a young white boy, perhaps 11 or 12 years old, holds open a carton of milk. This is from Keegan's essay. This, this is a quote. The young boy, 11 or 12, holds open a carton of milk in front of a mirror. Looking down at his thin body, he queries his reflection. What girl is going to go for me with a body like this? His reflection instantly ages several years, shooting up in height and gaining muscle mass, still holding the milk carton. Hang in there, Tom. I'm, year, I'm you two years from now, because you're drinking milk and working out, says his reflection. Well, I'm not changing so far, replies young Tom. Older Tom swigs from the carton and immediately gets even older, taller, and broader. Hey, if the sight of yourself at 18 doesn't convince you, Tom, listen to your senior, senior year girlfriend. An attractive blonde woman enters the mirror reflection from older Tom's left, leaning into him with a seductive femininity. Hi, Tom, I'm waiting, she says huskily, clearly a sexual invitation. Young Tom immediately begins chugging from his milk. <laughs> End of commercial. So that was like all over the airwaves when I was growing up. Like milk, it does a body good, and this like skinny kid who wanted to, who wanted to be like big and strong and drank milk uh, was like, everywhere uh, if you were growing up in like the, the 90s in the, in the States. And Keegan, a young trans man, recognized himself in this ad. 
he recognized the gender dysphoria of young Tom, of staring at yourself in the mirror and despairing of what you see. And the ad mapped, out a, way, mapped a way out of his situation. You need to take a special substance to become like the strong, masculine, older Tom. Meanwhile, the girlfriend struck Keegan as especially upsetting. Her line, I'm waiting, was a warning. His life, her life was what, be, what would be waiting for Keegan if he could not find the special substance, a milk, that would make him into older Tom and not her. These days, I happen to like Keegan's criteria for what makes a transgender text as much as I ever liked the topside test if only because I like to imagine how the farmers of the American Dairy Council might react when they learned that they thought they were producing ads for milk, but they were actually producing transgender literature. <laughs> which is to say, perhaps transgender literature isn't even that which would be claimed as such. It might be created by those who would actively resist the label. The most famous essay by Susan Stryker, one of the founding fathers in the field of trans studies, takes its title, my words to Victor Frankenstein above the village of Chamois from the scene in which the monster first speaks back to its maker. In a more popular register, the writers Isle McRoy and P.E. Moskowitz have claimed Fight Club and the story arc of Carmela Soprano as texts that have in some way hailed them, texts that have winked at them in some special way. And then there's me. Although many of my friends find it a bit perverse, I feel hailed as a trans woman, by Hemingway. And I don't mean the posthumous stuff, like Garden of Eden. I mean prime Hemingway, bullfighting, fishing with machine guns Hemingway. Some of it is specific to me and inevitable, but I'd like to make the case that everyone can understand Hemingway this way. Hemingway was born in Oak Park, Illinois, to teetotaling parents. I was born in Evanston, the sister suburb to Oak Park, and home of the temperance movement. The two Chicago suburbs have remained very similar, even across the 80 years that separate our births. Well-appointed Victorians, green lawns, a reputation for good public schools steeped in a kind of throwback Americana. The Hemingways vacationed on Lake Walloon in Michigan. My own parents vacationed in New Buffalo, Michigan. Hemingway canoed through high school. I taught sailing at the local harbor. This is not to say that I'm drawing a straight equivalency between myself and Hemingway. In fact, the opposite. It is to say that I know his childhood, I know deeply where he came from, and that in such a childhood, one finds very scant materials at all, aside from perhaps fishing, that, we, that would suggest that he should ever become the man that he became. In other words, the man that he became, he created nearly from scratch. And this is why he hails me. He came from exactly where I came from, and he built himself entirely other to that which he was supposed to be. And even more to the point, he made himself into a kind of gender freak, a cultist of virility, a parody of testosterone-induced reticence, an eerily sublime neo-caveman. And even more ridiculous, he insisted he was born that way, that he had always been as he was. In his two nonfiction books, Death in, Africa and the Green Hill, Death in the Afternoon and The Green Hills of Africa, he adopts a weary, wise attitude to his subjects, as if he had been a cultural inheritor to a ringside seat at the bullfight, had long, always, and naturally known the secrets of the matador, or the smell of lions in the grass, because it was manly to know such things, and he was a man. Despite the fact that he grew up where I grew up, where I can promise you, you will find no lions or bulls, <laughs> and not even a cow. 
<laughs> perhaps a vicious Pomeranian if you're lucky. And yet, do not ever mention that Hemingway might be failing to convince you that he is the man he claims to be and has always been so. Do not doubt that the, the gender he has adopted. Do not even note that he has adopted it. It might that it seems somehow slightly apart from his biography. A critic named Eastman made that mistake, writing in a review of the Green Hills of Africa that Hemingway was, quote, guilty of wearing false hair on his chest. In response to this review, Hemingway stewed for four years until he was able to corner Eastman at a party, whereupon he ripped open his shirt to show off how much hair actually grew on his chest and shouted, what do you mean accusing me of impotence before slapping Eastman with a book? This guy, who's wildly offended by the suggestion of impotence, became the most famous American writer of his era by writing an impotent narrator based on himself in his debut novel, The Sun Also Rises. And yet who thinks a literal display of chest hair could correct a critic's literary metaphor? It's like so embarrassing. It's such an indiscreet psychological gender train wreck. And yet I relate, or rather I feel entirely hailed by it. Here's Hemingway, hanky fluttering wildly, flagging me down as I read him. Hello, fellow gender failure. How anxious Hemingway was to pull off the same trick the transsexuals have long been expected to master. They are to be a gender they once were not, to be that gender as if they had always been it, without ever showing they had to do the work of learning how to be it. I'll spare you a wild reduction of Judith Butler by way of Austinian speech act theory and Derrida, and instead I hope you'll trust me when I say that gender, in order to be performed success successfully and felicitously, must be done as if you had always and already been that way, no matter how ridiculous it is to claim to be so. You're never to show your work. To show your work is to raise the question of whether the gender is unnatural to you. When I, a male to female transsexual, read the anxious work of Hemingway, especially the nonfiction, I recognize the writing of another transsexual, which is not to say that I can claim him politically for my category, as I was discussing above, but instead that I feel a deep recognition, an emotional hailing. In Hemingway, I read someone who has traveled outlandishly far along the gender spectrum. And when, I, I'm not, and when I am not speaking from a politically defensive crouch, when I'm talking with people of good faith, I like to say that Hemingway's work betrays an obvious male-to-male -male transsexualism. But wait, you might be protesting, male-to-male -male transsexualism? That's not a thing. <laughs> To be a transsexual, you must cross a gender boundary. That's what these transgenders these days are always screaming about, the binary, that invisible line of demarcation that separates male from female in an imagined spectrum. And yes, that is the place where most attention is focused in the trans debate, just as an inordinate amount of attention is paid to the 2.5 mile wide demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. But for me, it's not the most interesting place to spend a lifetime thinking about. Those 2.5 miles matter only psychologically and societally. A thousand years ago, those 2.5 miles were miles like any other, and another thousand years, they may be again. Think of the word transgender. In English, the prefix trans comes from Latin and simply means movement, transportation, transubstantiation, transfer, transition, transgender, to move in gender. And cisgender, the neologism 
created to describe the opposite of transgender, much as the word homosexual gave need to the creation of its opposite, heterosexual. The prefix cis comes from Greek. It's largely used in chemistry, and it means inert, not moving. So you can move in gender and be transgender, or you can have a staying the same in gender, cisgender. It seems to me that at least etymologically, Hemingway's work was transgender and intensely focused on being transgender. As with the DMZ in Korea, the, dis the, the distance that one can travel gender-wise on either side of the DMZ is actually much further than the distance that one travels in order to cross the DMZ. It's much further, and in some ways much more extreme, to walk from Seoul to Busan than it is to walk across the border of North and South Korea, which is, again, is 2.5 miles and might take me less than an hour at a, leisurely at a leisurely pace, if it weren't for all the tanks and barbed wire that other humans have arbitrarily set up there to make it difficult for me to do so. Just as a smooth stroll across the air short area of demarcation between male and female might not actually be a notable trip, if not for the rhetorical buildup of tanks and barbed wire. In a similar vein, could you not say, for instance, that a male bodybuilder has not traveled further along a, tr a gender spectrum than I have? That the desire to be alpha, to be beast, to be huge comes from a place of gender dysphoria? The weakling staring at, with despair at himself in the mirror as in the milk commercial? And that to become the giant man, one embarks on a regimen just like the one that I have embarked on. Hormones, steroids, surgery, discipline and workouts, and comportment, a total change in one's social world. And this is not just the work of bodybuilders, but of course, most famous people these days, and a good number of non-famous people. Every female influencer, for instance. About two years ago, I got called a misogynist for saying that Kim Kardashian was a female-to-female -female transsexual. But of course, how could I not? She and many of my friends have had the exact same surgeries, did the exact same makeup in order to create the exact same effect. The butt surgeries, who do you think pioneered them? <laughs> Trans women in Brazil, injecting silicone. The heavy contouring, who pioneered that? Drag queens, drawing femme cheekbones onto their faces. And so if I say that Hemingway's work is transgender in this way, I say so partly because I find great comfort in that. Almost everyone from my city was introduced early to Hemingway, given a book by our native son. But in my case, it was a, in my case, it was a great uncle who ceremoniously presented me with a cloth-bound copy of For Whom the Bell Tolls when I was 13 years old, which I think is the most portentous and stiltedly masculine of his novels. And it may seem that I'm mocking a bit Hemingway's gender, but I'm grateful for it. For here I was, 13 years old, in a suburb of Chicago, dissociated, wanting desperately to reinvent myself, to seize somehow the freedom to make myself other than that was, which was expected of me. And in Hemingway, I recognized someone who had been like me once, had come where I came from, and who had made himself unrecognizable. This guy was from Chicago, this strange character who spoke with formal thou pronouns and fought for communists out of honor. The narrative of trans coming out is that somehow you're supposed to know that you were the other gender from the start. I'm not sure that I could have ever put it that way. Before I understood that I needed to cross a gender boundary, I felt, I felt a simple need to move in a gendered way, to leave the space where I was, and in some ways, any direction would have done. The important thing was to vacate the intolerable position I occupied. 
Hemingway did that. And because I was at 13 I read him, I understood that such movement was possible, that it was my potential as well. I didn't need him to become a woman, I just needed to see him move. It was only much later that I learned of any androgyny in Hemingway's work, and when I did, I simply felt like, of course. It seemed obvious to me, inevitable. To someone to whom gender movement came so easily, I don't think, could move in a straight line for an entire lifetime, even if that was the intention. And here's the part I want to share with you today, the bit that I think helps explain Hemingway's Garden of Eden gender play, the desire for femininity or androgyny that, or return that surfaces constantly in his work, from Brett's short hair in The Sun Also Rises to the viejo's regret that he had gone too far in the allegory of the old man in the sea. So here it is, my secret contention. There really, no, is, there really is no such thing as a gender spectrum. No continuum where different gradations of gender are set at a fixed distance from one another and must be crossed in series. It's just a convenient way to describe to to gender to people who haven't thought about it very much. A heuristic political tool to get people to discover and accept the concept of transgender. A spectrum or a continuum is, by definition, one-dimensional and partial. In reality, whenever you go really far in one direction, you end up back where you came from, or you punch through dimensions, as in physics. By way of example, let's return to the bodybuilders. To get really huge as a bodybuilder, to go like absolutely beast mode, you don't simply take testosterone. You take a cocktail, trembolone, oxygen, diabinol, etc. There's a whole bunch of things you take to activate every bit of your body's development. The relevant thing about these drugs is that they don't just raise testosterone levels, they hit estrogen receptors. If you go on a Reddit forum for bodybuilders, the really dedicated guys all save money for the eventual breast reduction surgery that they'll need. The drugs hit progesterone receptors as well, at levels unseen outside pregnant women. Which is to say, to be hypermasculine is to have the body chemistry of a, chem of a pregnant woman, <laughs> our society's symbol of feminine fertility. To be hypermasculine hyper is to be ultra-feminine, and vice versa. And at that point, what are we even saying? To read Hemingway is to intuit all of this. To see how far the man traveled along a gender spectrum and to see the gender spectrum collapse is a journey that much trans writing I have read takes, that my own book sketches, a simultaneous belief in and collapse of the rigid possibilities of gender a recognition that the work of gender belongs to anyone who has a gender and wants to become, which is any, everyone. And to read Hemingway is to reverse the progress narrative patronizingly applied to trans people themselves. To read Tori Peters is to realize, oh, trans people, they're just like me. But to read Hemingway is to realize, oh my God, trans people, I'm just like them. <laughs> Thanks, that's the, uh, that's the written part. <laughs> So, uh, just want to like clarify like a few things because there's like some visual stuff in there that I want to just make sure makes sense for people. Like the uh, the whoa, what is that? Oh, my impressive motorcycle. Speaking of hypermasculine, um, you know, the gender spectrum is often often sort of. I don't know if people can see, but you can even imagine it's, it's, it's portrayed as this, you know, ma masculinity, femininity, and people fall somewhere in there. 
and the area that I think is contested in a lot of like discourse around non-binary stuff is, is basically there. But what I'm, the first thing I'm sort of contending, if you want to see it visually, is that like, let's say this is male, this is female, that like, I maybe went from here to here, this far. Hemingway went from here to like here. <laughs> so who's actually moving in gender more? Right? What, what is, and what do we actually mean when we say transgender? Why, if we're talking about movement and gender and that's transgender, why is this the place of focus other than perhaps what's the, the obsessions of this moment in society? Which is to say many people along this are as concerned with gender as trans people. And the question is, you know, why this particular focus on this particular, uh, say, militarized area of gender? So, and then the other thing is the, the physics metaphor that, that, I, that I saw, and this will make sense in a few other things, is that, you know, this spectrum is, is, is literally one-dimensional. And when physicists talk about wormholes between dimensions, they just fold a piece of paper in half, and they're going to do this better than me, and then they put a pen through it. And now the two are touching, and they're the same. And this is, this is what I read in Hemingway. I read a thing where he goes this far, and then the dimensions move, and suddenly he's this far, over here. And that you find this stuff all through literature. When I, when I gave a description of this talk, um, I wanted to cite some other authors and just kind of talk about it. And I ended up not doing it because I was like, this is already a, you know, 35 minutes of me talking in a paper. I won't like add a bunch of other textual examples of other authors doing this. But what I find is actually that this trans way of reading things can be applied to many authors in interesting ways. If you read the protagonists, I mean, if you read Magic Mountain, like one of the things that like was very fun for me in Magic Mountain is Magic Mountain's like a perfect, a perfect wormhole book in that uh, Hans Kastrop, the, the protagonist, is in love with a boy and then uh, when he's in, in school and then he meets a, a doppelganger, a perfect doppelganger of that boy as a girl up on the magic mountain and he falls in love with her. And it's impossible to tell if he's falling in love with her because it's a memory of the boy or the boy is a, uh, is a forerunner of her. And you have this kind of thing where the, the reason, like what he's in love with isn't either the boy or the girl and it's un unclear whether that they're different. It's the wormhole effect. It's basically the way that gender works that Hans Konstrop is falling in love with. The same thing happens in Evelyn Waugh, where um, you know the 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 Sebastian character is a forerunner for the Julia character in uh, *Brideshead Revisited*, and this kind of lens, uh, you know, I think most of me and my friends we we tend to read with with this kind of understanding, and what I want to basically offer is the idea that this is a stage in the evolution of, 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 of the development of a minority literature. And from this, I, I often cite um, Joanna Russ, who's an American science fiction author who wrote a lot about uh, women's writing. And Joanna Russ talked about this development of minority literature in which she said uh, that the first stage of minority literature, you know, she was talking about women's literature, but you could say this about black literature, you could say about all sorts of literature, and I'm gonna say it positive here about trans literature, the first stage of, of literature is a, is a kind of identification, 
of saying like, we're just like you. You should accept us. You should be nice to us. Here's why we're okay. Please, please don't, you know, please think we're, we're permissible. The second stage is a kind of rejection, which is like the punk sort of like the way you reject your parents or something. It's like, we're nothing like you. We, we, we reject you. We, we don't want you. And then the third stage is a stage where you basically say, I have nothing to do with the dominant culture. I reject the terms of the dominant culture, and I have my own terms for it. And this is the kind of thing that was happening at Topside. It was why it was so uh, vehemently trans for trans. We were trying to make stories that actually were not pulled by the gravity of dominant culture. That's, that's essentially Joanna Russ's schema. But I would suggest that there's a fourth level that actually happens, which is when the dominant culture tends to pick up the lenses of the minority culture. You see this in race, where you, where you have novels about white ethnicities being, being understood and, and, and analyzed through the lenses created by black scholars and thinkers of color. You see it in queer stuff, where we understand heterosexual sexuality, the way that the d desire works through lenses that are developed by queer thinkers. And I'd basically say, I don't know how it is in Norway, but I basically say that what's happening in the United States is that trans literature is entering that fourth stage where writers who are cis, who actually have very, um, may or may not have anything to do with trans thought, are, are using this concept of gender, which is not simply like male or female and everything's natural and that's how it is, and like bio biological determinism, to understand their own genders. The, the book that for me was like the kind of breakthrough on this, I don't know if anyone's read it, was The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, which was a book about motherhood using, uh, which basically she was like, what is motherhood using trans thought? And there were no trans people, or there were no, no trans mothers at all present in the book. And she understood how can we take motherhood and separate it from the biological process to understand what is actually like the kind of gender and process of motherhood. And, and uh, for me, that was really shocking to, to this book because I, I thought, I was sort of like, oh, we're actually at that fourth stage right now. And so one of the reasons I wanted to do the talk about Hemingway was to basically suggest that this can actually be applied to many different writers, these, these lenses, these ways of thinking. Um, the... I was going to prepare some like Norwegian writers for you all. Um, you know, the obvious, the obvious uh, go-to for this is Knausgaard, but I feel like uh, it's already been done, that one. Uh, so, but I thought that an interesting example was the Per Pettersson uh, book, all, uh, Outstealing Horses. There's an example in this. Um, I love that book. I think it's so beautiful. But if you think about the actual premise of the book, it's... Um, it's a guy going to a cabin, and he's, when he's in the cabin, it's a lot of, and he, he's explicitly rejecting a lot of women. His daughter comes to visit him, and there's a kind of rejection happening. He wants to get away from his past where, where there were women, and, it's, and he's going into the woods to a little bit confront his past, but a little bit also to like cut chainsaws with his neighbor and reflect in this way. And the book is... I think really beautifully and poignantly full of etiquette tips in a way that like is very surprising. Like there's whole sections on when you have dinner at night by yourself, it's very important to put on a clean shirt. You need to uh, set the table with a tablecloth. You have to have something green. Here's the kind of candles that you should have. And for me, I don't know if this house is for Norwegian readers, 
But for me, it's like reading a Martha Stewart magazine. It's like, here's how to have a little, like a very nice dinner party. Um, and it's highly feminine coded. And so here's this case, again, where you have this movement towards the masculine and it breaks through into things that are coded feminine. And you can sort of begin to see the movement and it becomes, uh, to me, gorgeous. Like I really, I really love that part. Um, so I, I, the, I'll just end this talk by suggesting that this, this idea of, of Hemingway and this reading of Hemingway um, isn't, isn't actually just about Hemingway. It's not just about did Hemingway write transgender literature, but actually where might you find the transgender literature uh, and the lenses that, that trans people use in that fourth stage across all sorts of literatures. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.